Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for, you for who you are. We thank you for your word. Your word always remains timeless and true. It gives us the strength we need, the power we need, the truth we need, especially in these tough times. Your word is breathed out by God. And because of that, it is our life. So Lord, I pray that you would bury your, the seeds of your truth deep within us today. And may it bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> when we think of barriers, there are some that are physical barriers that are torn down, such as the Berlin Wall. There was also the breaking of the sound barrier for the first time in 1947, which is when an aircraft is, is designed purposely to approach or even surpass the speed of sound. And that happened in 1947. That's unbelievable, isn't it? There's the concept of breaking barriers and technology, achieving advancement never before dreamed of. Or there are sports records broken on any given day. But there are just some barriers, especially between humans, where there is only one solution, one hope, and one source of peace in healing and restoration. And this message, God ordained. Uh, we didn't have our, uh, a service last week, so God orchestrated that this fall on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, this, and it just so happens to be a perfect message for this weekend. Jesus was the champion of breaking down barriers. But the champion of breaking down the barriers that mattered the most. Ones that humanity had created for ourselves. We're going to be setting up this week for a situation in which Jesus broke down a barrier that existed for hundreds of years between two people groups who held deep animosity towards each other. But Jesus simply introducing himself into the situation would be world-changing. We'll begin to see the hope and unity that only Jesus can bring, unifying people from every race, ethnicity, background, previous religion, past sins, and current struggles. Since we, had, since we had a bit of a break over the past few weeks, I just want to spend a couple of minutes refocusing our minds and hearts on the movement of what's recorded in John's Gospel, which we've been spending the last few months on. A few weeks ago, we wrapped up the last recorded words of John the Baptist. This followed Jesus' conversation with the Jewish scholar, Pharisee, and member of the Jewish religious council, Nicodemus. Both of these two previous events that the Apostle John records in this gospel directly factor into what we transition into starting this week. 
after Jesus' baptism, referenced in John 1, Jesus' popularity starts to slowly grow, beginning with the first miracle at a wedding in which he turned water into wine. Then Jesus overturned the money changers' tables in the temple for the first time during the first recorded Passover celebration Jesus spent in Jerusalem. As Jerusalem was packed during Passover, word starts spreading like wildfire about this fringe Jewish teacher from Nazareth who is challenging the status quo and performing miracles. Because of this, John chapter 2, verses 23 through 24, tells us that crowds of people were believing in his name. But Jesus was not revealing any more deeper spiritual truths to them at that point because he knew it would go right over their heads and cause more confusion. That statement is then juxtaposed with three personal conversations Jesus has with three individuals. Jesus does reveal a little bit deeper theological truth to the Jewish scholar Nicodemus because Nicodemus should have understood it. However, for all of his theological education, Nicodemus was just as lost as everyone else because he hadn't had his spiritual eyes opened up. Nicodemus was the epitome of Jewish religiosity, education, and morality, but he still didn't even get it. In our passage this morning, that conversation is contrasted with the setup for another conversation Jesus has with someone else, who would be considered the complete opposite of Nicodemus in Jewish thought when it came to ethnicity, religion, and even morality. But sandwiched in between are John the Baptist's last recorded words in which we see the transition from the emphasis on John's ministry as front runner to entirely on Jesus. In fact, the emphasis transition onto Jesus is so complete that it starts getting the attention of the Pharisees. Knowing it wasn't anywhere near the hour for him to go to the cross yet, Jesus didn't want this attention, precipitating where we're picking up in John's gospel this morning. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 4. Uh, if, you didn't, if you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you, or you can look this up on your Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 4, we're going to be starting in the first few verses here. Verses 1 through 3. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. Again, linking back to even before Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, no one needed to tell him about human nature for he knew what was in each person's heart. So Jesus finds out that reports have been brought to the Pharisees' attention that his disciples were also baptizing, and knowing already what the Pharisees were thinking, Jesus decided to move on out of the area. What did Jesus know the Pharisees were thinking? 
that they already knew about John the Baptist and had already had a run-in with John the Baptist about his baptism. On top of that, Jesus knows he's already on the Pharisees' bad list for, he's already, for what he's already done by shutting down worship at the temple for a full day, throwing over everybody's money-changing tables. Add to that his similar baptism as John, and Jesus knows that if he stays there, there any longer where he is, there will be trouble with the Pharisees and trouble he knew it wasn't God's timing for yet. So Jesus moves on to move out of the area of the Pharisees' greatest influence in the area of Judea back into Galilee. Linking back to John the Baptist's last recorded words in verses 1 through 3 are also the transitionary verses that tell us the emphasis has fully moved on to Jesus from John the Baptist. This chapter of baptism being the main focus of ministry is now closed and Jesus moves on to the next portion of his ministry. Jesus had been in Galilee once before. Sorry, you can't really see this all too well. But Jesus had been in Galilee once more. Here we, here we are. We're, here's Judea in the purple area here, Samaria in yellow, and Galilee up here uh, again in the purple. Jesus had been in Galilee once before where he called Philip and Nathaniel to be his disciples in John chapter 1. And then to attend the wedding in Cana in Galilee, where he performed his first miracle. Following that, Jesus returned to Jerusalem to cleanse the temple from the money changers and remain there for Passover and to have a conversation with one of J Jerusalem's elite, Nicodemus. Following that, Jesus remains in the general Judean area to baptize people, but now Jesus returns to Galilee. We know Jesus is, heading, is headed back to Galilee, but it's how Jesus returns to Galilee that sets up this experience of him breaking down a barrier that existed for hundreds of years. You see here that in between Judea and Galilee, where Judea where Jesus was and Galilee where Jesus is going, are they adjacent? Are they right next to each other? No. There's something in between. There's a region that lays directly in between, and that's the region of Samaria here. The Jewish people and the Samaritan people, or people from Samaria, had a hatred for each other that went back hundreds of years before and carried through until what's recorded in John. Here's why. The whole area used to be one people group, the Israelites. You remember that from your Sunday school classes or VBS. One people group, the Israelites. They came into the land of Canaan following freedom from slavery in Egypt under Moses, conquered the land under Joshua, divided it up according to the tribes of Israel, and settled here in this general area here, this whole area. Eventually, this whole area became a kingdom ruled by Israel's kings, Saul, David, Solomon. Because Solomon completely turned his back on God, chasing after all the false gods of his pagan wives and concubines, including Moloch, 
the child-sacrificing deity, God tore away the kingdom from Solomon's son. Indeed, when Solomon's son Rehoboam became king, the other ten tribes of Israel rebelled against Rehoboam's leadership and set up their own kingdom. That one tribe that remained loyal to Rehoboam, the tribe of Judah, remained the southern kingdom of, Ju southern kingdom of Judah, and the other tribes of Israel formed the northern king, uh, kingdom of Israel. Years and years passed with good kings, but mostly bad kings, ruling over both kingdoms. The people of both kingdoms turned away from God more and more and more, committing worse and worse sins and more and more atrocities of injustice against their own people that God finally had enough. He sent prophets to warn both kingdoms of destruction. And what did the people do to those prophets? They killed them. So God followed through with his discipline of his people in both kingdoms. To the southern kingdom of Judah, this area here, he sent the Babylonians who carted away most of the Jewish people where they lived in exile in Babylon. But here's something very important to keep in mind. The Jewish people were allowed to keep their Jewish bloodline, culture, and worship intact. The concept of the synagogue sprang up for the Jewish people to keep their identity and religion alive while in Babylon. But something different happened with the northern kingdom of Israel. God used a different people group to conquer that kingdom called the Assyrians. Whereas the Babylonians utilized the system of carting away the people they conquered back to Babylon to render the conquered area desolate, since no one of any political power remained there, the Assyrians utilized a different system of conquering. Instead of carting everyone away, thus possibly preserving that people group's identity, the Syrians sought to even destroy that identity completely. They did it by forcibly taking their own people and intermarrying them with the conquered people group, making all the descendants from that point forward only half-blooded people of an identity. In this case, the Assyrians intermarried themselves with the Jewish people in the northern kingdom. They conquered, thus creating half-blooded Jewish people that had no sure identity anymore. Since they lived in the area around the former Israelite city of Samaria, they simply became known as the Samaritans. And that's this area right here now in Jesus' day. According to one biblical scholar, the Samaritans with this new identity started claiming to be Abraham's true descendants instead of the full-blooded Jewish people. They then built their own counterfeit temple to, to God on Mount Gerizim and even had their own priesthood and sacrificial system. Completely separate from the Jewish temple, priesthood, sacrificial system, and really the whole mosaic and Jewish system of worship of the one true God. 
These moves already created animosity and tension between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. In the book of Ezra, we read that, the, that when the people of Judah were allowed to return to Jerusalem after their exile in Babylon and then Persia, the Samaritans opposed any plans the people of Judah had to rebuild Jerusalem in the temple there. In fact, they thwarted the people of Judah's plans to rebuild for two reigns of Persian kings. We know that finally the people of Judah were able to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and Zerubbabel's temple, but it was delayed for decades because of the Samaritans' malicious opposition. Fast forward a little while. The Jewish people are back in Judah, back in Jerusalem, and the Jewish system of worship is restored. Enter the Greeks who conquered the area. When Antiochus IV initiated intense persecution of the Jewish people, forcing them to worship Greek deities under threat of death, the Samaritans chose to ally themselves with the Greeks, giving the Jewish people no help whatsoever and rather making everything worse for them. So, we can now see the reasons for why the Jewish people in Judah would hate the Samaritans so much. You guys see that? Since these things usually go both ways, there is also reasons for, uh, also a reason for the Samaritans to hate the Jewish people. According to one biblical scholar, in retaliation for allying with the oppressive Greeks, once the Jewish people drove the Greeks out and regained their own power about a hundred years before the birth of Jesus, one of those Jewish leaders went and destroyed the Samaritan's temple. Going both ways, there was intense ethnic, religious, and violent hatred and discrimination between the people who made up these two areas, Judea and Samaria. And we can see the roots for all this hatred and discrimination. Roots that had started hundreds of years before and had only been aggravated and made worse over the years. Because of this, most, not all, but most Jewish people going in between Judea and Galilee would completely avoid traveling through Samaria. They'd come up through Judea, they'd cross over the Jordan River into Perea, come up this way, go through the Decapolis, and then into Galilee. They would completely avoid the entire region of Samaria when they would go between Judea and Galilee. They didn't want to have anything, not even step on their land. They didn't want to have anything to do with those horrible Samaritans, not even breathe the same air as them. So knowing all of this gives a whole lot of meaning to verse 4. And he, Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. So he had to pass through Samaria. By human standards, Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. But by God's standards for his mission, Jesus did 
have to travel through Samaria. There was a very specific reason for it. To bring the hope of salvation to this people group. To show that his message knew no barriers and no discrimination. It was for anyone and everyone, regardless of ethnicity, race, or previous religion. Regardless of the individual woman Jesus would have a conversation with, which we're going to pick up with next week, Jesus wanted to show that his message of hope extended to anyone and everyone by even stepping foot into Samaria. Jesus moves on into the area of Samaria surrounding the village of Sychar, verses 5 through the beginning part of verse 6. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, this area of Jacob's well is the same area that resided just outside of the Old Testament city of Shechem. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the horrific experience that befell Jacob's family when his daughter Dinah is sexually assaulted by the prince of Shechem. Jacob's other sons made everything worse by destroying the whole city and doing so in a way that exacerbated the extent of evil that took place there at that point. Shechem would spend the next 450 years known for this evil and desolation. But like we talked about last uh, a couple weeks ago, God is a God of redemption. God is a God of redemption. He redeemed Dinah's life, and he redeemed the existence of the city of Shechem. It became known as a city of refuge in the days of Joshua, and the place where Joshua restored the people of Israel, to following the Lord as their God. And ultimately, as we see here, it's the very setting of Jesus breaking down barriers that existed for hundreds of years, bringing his message of salvation and hope, not only to one individual woman, but to the Samaritan people as a whole. We end this morning's passage with the setting up for this conversation with this particular Samaritan woman, second part of verse 6. So Jesus, being weary from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's while Jesus, completely worn out, and sitting next to this very same well that Jacob had dug, close to 2,000 years before this, that sets up for what happens next. Next week, we'll dive headfirst into this conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. But for now, I just, want to set, I just wanted to set up how Jesus' very presence in Samaria, in the first place, broke down barriers that no one thought could ever be broken down. There are barriers that sadly continue to exist in humanity today. Racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, relational, gender, familial, and so on and so forth. As hard as the government may try, they will never come up with a solution that pleases everyone 
or can really fix what's at the heart of barriers. Self-help gurus can never fix what's at the heart of barriers. You cannot fix what's at the heart of barriers. Why? Because at the heart of barriers, and usually what's at the root of them, no matter what barrier it is, is sin. That's at the root of every single barrier that has ever existed in humanity. Sin. And the heartache that arises from sin. And no nonprofit organization, no governmental program, no psychological angle, no celebrities' Twitter account, no bumper stickers, and no meme reshared a billion times is going to change that. Jesus is the only one who can break down any sort of barrier, no matter what it is. It takes repentance and turning to Jesus to break down barriers and trust in him to bring healing and restoration. It's similar to everything else that's connected to sin. We need to repent of any barriers we've constructed, whether it's discrimination based on race, skin color, ethnicity, religion, perceived identity, past sin, or current struggle, or whether it's relational barriers we've constructed in our personal relationships. In the unity of the Holy Spirit, there is absolutely no room for any of these barriers. Jesus' message of salvation goes beyond all humanly constructed barriers, tearing them down, leveling out all the ground at the foot of the cross, and bringing healing and restoration in only a way that he can. Humans, in our sin, create division. We create ways of labeling each other and ways of seeing each other differently. Jesus says there is only one source of peace, hope, and salvation, and it's found in no place and in no one other than me. The only thing that matters is if someone put their faith and trust in Jesus for their salvation from their sin, including this sin. That's the beauty of the church. The church is the body of Christ, and as such should reflect the unity of Christ, made up of people from all kinds of ethnicities and backgrounds. Paul writes, There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This one verse already covers three different barriers. The first one is an ethnic or religious barrier. The second one, a socioeconomic barrier. And the third one, a gender barrier. And it tells us that there is no kind of these barriers, for we are all one in faith in Jesus. It's the unity of the Holy Spirit that binds us together so that people from all races, ethnicities, and backgrounds can join together as one. 
the world will continue on the way it always has. Blind in its sin, blind in its darkness. It is only through repentance and Jesus breaking down the barriers in our lives through the Holy Spirit that there is any kind of unity. The only lasting reconciliation and restoration comes through and from Jesus. One characteristic of Jesus' whole kingdom is based on this restoration and unity. We read about that kingdom. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. This unity in his church is something that God holds near and dear to his heart. May we always strive to reflect that as a church family and how we interact with everyone outside this church and in this world. May we show this world that just doesn't get it, that Jesus is the only way for barriers to be broken down. Jesus is their only hope. Hope for salvation and hope for reconciliation. May we, as Jesus' church, be the lead chargers of that love. May we always reflect this characteristic of Jesus' heart, unity and love. May we always strive to follow Paul's words to the church in Ephesus. A diverse church, if you look up what the church in Ephesus was like. A diverse church made up of people from all races, ethnicities, socioeconomic statuses, backgrounds, past sins, and current struggles as another part of Christ's body and a reflection of his kingdom. And this is what we'll close with this morning. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility in gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, on this MLK weekend, we thank you that you are the only one who can ever break down any barriers that humans have constructed. You are the only one who can bring about any kind of reconciliation. If there's any discrimination in our hearts, I pray that we would repent of that. Know that you are the one who brings unity and reconciliation and hope. I pray that your Holy Spirit would flow out of us into this dark world that just doesn't get it. They come up with every kind of solution they think is going to help this situation, but it is only through you that any reconciliation, any hope will, will happen. We thank you that you are 
the one and only source of, of unity and reconciliation. And I pray that we find our rest in that truth. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.